Hi, and welcome to Security Explained. I'm Chris Grayson. I'm Drew Porter. And I'm Logan Lamb. We're coming to you every two weeks with tips and tricks on how to protect yourself and your loved ones out there on the internet and in real life. The 2020 presidential election is now 20 days away. So today we'll be discussing election security, a topic near and dear to our hearts. How secure are voting machines? How secure is absentee voting? What's the deal with Russian meddling? We'll cover these topics and more. Let's get started. Now, how do you guys want to kick it off? Voting machines? I like voting machines. Voting yeah. machines sounds good. So <clears throat> voting machines come in many different flavors. Uh, let's start with best and go down to worst. The best voting machine we have is our own hand, holding a pencil, marking a paper ballot. Hand-marked paper ballots are the gold standard used in elections. And the primary reason for that is it fully captures the voter's intent at the time that they mark the ballot. And it's the easiest way to go back and verify the vote. And hand-marked paper ballots can also not be hacked unlike electronic voting machines they can be hacked yeah and and the companies that own them don't care about like security uh, on a large part only when they're forced to i mean we've been asked to look at voting machines beforehand we're scoping out this project and i'm like all right so what type of architecture are we are you running on these systems and they're like why do you need to know that i was like well when we develop you know an exploit for it i need to know what what we're going to be developing the exploit for. Is it an ARM processor? Is it Intel? Right? What type of operating system? And they were like, we don't even care about that. We just care if you can get in the system. I was like, you want me to pick the master lock on the side? And they're like, yes. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's accurate. <laughs> like, like that was that that was it it was so eye-opening. And this was years ago. This is before 2018. I asked them, all right, so have you ever done a full audit of that? And, and I literally got interrupted by one of the lawyers on on the phone call. And they're like, we can't discuss that over the phone. It's a national security issue. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, there was research done 15 years ago detailing just how vulnerable all of these electronic voting machines are. The two most prominent reports are the top-to-bottom review and the Everest report, which we'll have to link in the show notes. And and the uh, TLDR of those documents is all of the electronic voting machines they checked were in fact vulnerable, and they were vulnerable to a plethora of exploits. Uh, You could compromise individual machines and change the vote. You could compromise individual machines and then create a worm that propagated through PCMCIA cards. The other thing with this is that we have at DEF CON, which is the largest hacking conference in the world, I think last year they brought in some voting machines. And unknowns to a lot of people, five years ago or seven years ago, DEF CON, or no, actually it was before then. So they did it seven years ago, again, for sure. But then uh, even before then, going back to, I think, nine years ago, no, or eight years ago. Sorry, I'm trying to remember the exact time frame. There was a group that brought a voting machine to DEF CON. They didn't announce it. And they just put it in the Hacker Jeopardy area. 
And long behold, it was I, I ran into it. There's a group of hackers that also ran into it, and we all started hacking it. And it was extremely easy, right? And then this year at DEF CON, they had a few voting machines, and they had kids, like single-digit age kids, right? Seven, eight, nine kids just breaking into these machines successfully. And it wasn't like it was difficult. It took them under two hours to do this. So if you have you know, younger children who are computer smart being able to break into these voting machines, what does that mean for when we have state actors wanting to do this, right? Or when we have organized crime wanting to do this? This is it is it they just hire a bunch of kids is that what you're suggesting yeah pretty I think much, so. right <laughs> yeah uh but it is a it is a huge problem on the state level uh dhs wants to get involved but uh all right i'll say this there was a senator uh who i was speaking to earlier in 2020 uh, around voting machines and, and election security and I brought to her attention, I was like, hey, so election security, it's something in the cybersecurity world, you know, we're really worried about. And uh, she said, ah, yes, that's a state issue. And I I retorted back with, well, I, I think DHS is involved with it as well, tasked with helping it because the states can't do it on their own, implying some federal responsibility. And the response I got with that was, and no one wants to get into it right now. I was like, we're in election year, right? Yeah. Now, I didn't yeah. say that afterward. I just died inside afterward. <laughs> and uh, Common trend I was thinking, yeah, I, I was thinking like, we're in election year. What, why don't, what don't you want to talk about this? Like, this is extremely important. This is going to be a huge topic coming up. And it has been a huge topic. And it's going to be a topic after the election as well. Oh, guaranteed. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty. It's it's bananas, and the and the um. Well, well, one thing that I wanted to ask for some clarification on Logan. So you said with the paper ballots, it, it captures the intent of the voter at the time of the of the casting. Why is that? Why is that specific to paper votes? Why is that not something that we get in these uh, in these electronic alternatives? That is a great question. Everyone can think of voting machines as effectively big computers. Uh, if we're talking about touch screen voting machines, a good way to think about it is it's a big iPad, basically. And when you touch the screen, who knows what it's writing to its hard drive, right? It's like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm voting for Sally. It doesn't mean it's actually going to record you're voting for Sally. It might drop your vote. It might record that you're voting for Frank, for example. And really, comparing it to an iPad is not fair because iPads are more modern and stable. It would be better to compare them to old Palm Pilots because many do run Windows CE. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Yeah. Well, the, the uh, one of the other things that is commonly touted—I mean, especially as somebody that works in the security industry—you hear that blockchain is a solution to everything. <laughs> I have my skepticism, but I've definitely heard that uh, blockchain could potentially be a solution to voting. That we should consider online voting. Uh, what do you guys think about that? Uh, no, just yeah, no. no. Yep. Nope. Nope. And, and I'll go into blockchain voting if someone wants to talk about that. Or I, I, you know. I well, first I want to I want to hear why is it a no out of the gates? Give me like your I don't know top few reasons as to why online voting is is such a bad idea. With internet voting, my reason why we shouldn't do it 
look at any major corporation in the last five years, Target, Home Depot, who's the credit reporting people? I forget that. Equifax. 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 Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> these, these are some righteous hacks that were done against these companies, right? <laughs> Just take that, make it a whole lot worse because it's dealing with elections now. And, so now you have uh, nation states. And now you have nation states to come into it, right? Not not these little organized crime things that get marked as APT, actual APT, um, yeah. <laughs> which is advanced persistent threat. If if you don't know what APT is, they're the yeah they're the they're the granddaddies <laughs> of uh, of folks that are going to try to break into stuff. Yeah, and everyone likes to say every hack is APT, but every hack is not APT. In fact, a lot are not. <laughs> most a lot not. get misidentified as APT because most, it gets more funding. Yeah, but, and most likely, if it is APT, you're probably not seeing it. Yeah, uh, that's right. Uh, yeah, that, so that's that's why I'm against internet voting. Hmm. Corporations can't get security correct, you know, 100 percent of the time, and the government is not really the bastion of security in and alone itself. So. I have a big mistrust of internet voting. And there's a lot of people I hear all the time. They're like, yeah, we should be able to vote online. And I was just like, no, we shouldn't actually. I had one person not knowing what I do tell me, no, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm just angry because I didn't come up with the idea. And I was just like, I have no words for this conversation. <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> so that's so that's actually interesting to me because like this is the first time that we're having this part of this conversation. Um, and I actually have a different reason that I don't like online voting. I think it's probably kind of like a subset of what you're talking about, Drew. Um, and it's also probably colored by my, I guess, experience in in the industry is the problem of identity is like, how are you going to prove who you are? Right. Yeah. Like, uh, is it that you have your, your government password or like somehow it's related to your ID or like, like, you know, we could potentially like, yes. Okay. We can do distributed ledgers and, and all that stuff with blockchain. Okay. But how do you prove who you are so that you can vote a single time? And how can you do that in such a way that nobody else can impersonate you? Hey, Chris, uh, clearly you just need to identify yourself with your social security number. Ah, yes. That's fine, right? I, I am 32 now. I uh, went to... No old. I know, right? Jeez. I, I went to Georgia Tech and we had our student ID number. It turns out that uh, you know, like by the time that I got to college, it was known that a social security number is a sensitive piece of information. Apparently slightly before my getting to college, that was not the case. And your student ID number was actually your social security number. And that was the number that you were putting on all of your like tests and stuff to identify who you were. Wow. Yes. That's, that's really unfortunate. <laughs> yep. Yep. I mean, it depends who you are, if it's unfortunate, right? If you're a criminal. It's very fortunate. Uh, <laughs> true. That's fair. Always thinking like a criminal, Drew. <laughs> and one thing we haven't touched on with the online voting and blockchain voting, we're talking about security. We haven't even touched on, could we create a system that actually works reliably and one that would not fall over on election day? Uh, I don't know if we can execute on that. I think, uh, so there's another, there's another individual in this industry um, that goes by the name of Matt Blaze, and he has a lot of uh, very 
insightful super stuff. smart guy yeah mm-hmm. yeah super smart guy yep he's got a lot of really good stuff to say um and has had a lot to say about election security and one of the things that he pointed out uh that i that i, that I really liked was that it's like okay yeah we're gonna introduce a bunch of software into this now you not only do you have the problems that you had before but you have the problems with the software and like bugs in the software and software not act, behaving as you want it to I spent all day yesterday debugging software. I'll tell you right now, bro, getting software to work in the way that you want it to work is an art. It is difficult. And especially a system that big. There's two other problems that we have here. One, the government will go with the lowest bidder, right? Mm. And that's mm-hmm. never that's that's never failed before. And, and anything <laughs> related to technology. Uh, and that's sarcasm, if you couldn't tell, uh, by the way. But with identity, I think other countries that like try to do some digital voting, what they use is like a private certs. Uh, Every individual has like a private cert Hmm. and they adopt that model. And that kind of leads into blockchain, not not a one to one. So all you blockchain enthusiasts don't like that doesn't lead into it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) it, It does. It does because I say it does. But going into blockchain, everyone's like, yeah, we should have a total public ledger on this. And I'm like, yeah, we should totally not have people's voting records be public. And that is one of the things Mm. with blockchain. A lot of times people are like, there used to be the misconception that Bitcoin. It's anonymous. Was totally anonymous. You can't, they can't track you. It's a way for you to get around the IRS. And that was my best Alex Jones impression right there. (laughs) Um, pretty good. <laughs> and and uh, I'll try to work on it for next episode. It turns out uh, it's not actually. In fact, a lot of the stuff dealing with blockchain is not anonymous. And a lot of the blockchain companies, and I was talking about this recently, they actually don't care about your privacy or, or your information being lost. They care about making money right now. Uh, and, and it is a big problem in that industry. That is not really being addressed and just dealing with the the problems in the industry in itself. Blockchain is not the answer right now in its current development or its current uh, evolution, I should say, its maturity for voting. Maybe it will be the answer further down the road, but not as it stands right now. I don't think blockchain is a good technology to be looking at it. Again, I'm with Logan on this. I think handmarked paper ballots are the gold standard. And I think that's what yeah. we should be striving to, right? If you yeah. can't replace, if you can't replicate that in the digital world, then then we should work on it some more instead of trying to force certain technologies and voting. Everyone wants to push technology in it, but we have to remember we're dealing with two things against us. We're dealing with a system that is very slow to evolve, and we're dealing with companies who have very powerful lobbying arms that make it so that they don't have to involve that deals directly with the voting machine companies not just around security but around other things as well on not related to election security and a little out of scope for this podcast but we have to remember that it's not like they like congress isn't like oh we should do this it's like Congress is like, oh, you know what? We should probably do this, but I also want to get reelected next year. And they have millions of dollars they're going to throw my way. So yeah, let's not worry too much about voting machine fixing right now. There's another issue I, that I see with Internet and blockchain voting. And that's that even if we could snap our fingers and have a perfectly secure auditable online or blockchain system, 
we may still lose voter trust in those systems because they're so difficult to understand. If mm-hmm. voters mm-hmm. require a PhD to understand how their vote is, is counted, uh, they may lose trust. And that's something to consider as but well. You, you can also go to YouTube and watch all the cryptocurrency videos from all the dudes that know a lot about cryptocurrency and you should be good to go. So I don't know what you're talking about. That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's also, I mean, there's also the fact that it's like plenty of people don't have access to the internet. Plenty of people don't have computers. Like the the like non-technological means to solve this are are probably the well, I mean, I'm gonna defer to you guys. You guys are the are more expert than I here. Um, but it sounds to me like I mean I'm pretty convinced that paper ballots are the way to go. Paper ballots are the way to go, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And we'll talk we'll talk more about that and, and what that means for this year as well later in this podcast. Well then there's one other thing that you guys brought up that I wanted to to highlight. <laughs> because when we're talking about blockchain, I hadn't even considered that it's like, oh, yeah, if we're using blockchain, it's all publicly verifiable. That means like, yes, your votes can be publicly verified, which is to say you're exposing your voting record, which uh, we're in a very polarized society right now. That might not be something you want to do. <laughs> but and, and then to the point where it's like the whole thing of all these people thinking that blockchain is like, oh, it's anonymous, whatever. It's like it's actually a probably one of the most resilient data structures that will maintain the record of what you did for the longest so let's say that like, I don't know, in a few years, some technology comes along that's able to unwind all of these ways that people try to obfuscate uh, what they've done. It's going to be like, they'll be able to run that to ground and be like, yeah, we know that was you. Uh, I've got two points here. Uh, one of them is voters do have a right to a secret ballot. So their vote being publicly available is a complete non-starter. We, hmm. we just can't have a, a voting system that operates that way. Second point is some very uh, smart, clever people came up with uh, some crypto scheme, like a legitimate cryptography scheme of voting called StarVote. Uh, we'll have to drop a link in the show notes. It's a way of, yeah, assuming you can distribute your certs to the voters, it is a way of casting votes in a privacy-preserving way which mm. allows the voters to confirm their vote was counted. In Travis County, where Austin, Texas resides, uh, they tried to implement the system, but it was too complicated and they could not execute. Yep. Technology is hard, yo. Yep. Even the mostly easy technology that is, that is used in the voting process now has proven problematic for poll workers, for uh, folks that are, that are running these, uh, these elections. Also, I, I realize that we keep referring to certs um, so real quick, what that is, is uh, it's it's a certificate. It's a cryptographic artifact. Uh, and and for, for our purposes, you can think of it as somebody's handing you a certificate that so long as you hold it and they don't have a copy of it, you can prove your identity. Uh, and it's just kind of the digital equivalent of that. So every time that we're talking about certs, they're uh, talking about these cryptographic certificates. So how about absentee voting? I hear that that's, uh, that's going to be a problem. It will be. Oh man, it 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 definitely. Yes, I I was going to say it, it definitely could be, but yeah, I I am with Logan. Mass absentee ballot or uh, voting, uh, definitely, I think will be a will be a problem. And uh, I'll, I'll let you start this one, Logan, and then I'll jump in because um, I know I know we have strong feels about this as well. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the best way to freeze these things while uh, bringing politics into it as little as possible. If we were talking about this in 2019, I would say absentee voting. Absentee voting is great. 
But at this point in 2020, I think when this podcast comes out, we'll be 50 days out from the election. No, we're going to be 20 days. Yeah, 20 days. There are serious concerns about your vote being counted, about it even getting to the election center to be counted at all. Yeah. And and this is, it's so funny because it's so, now when we talk about this, if we were to talk about this literally in, in 2018 and 2015 and 2014, it wouldn't be considered a political statement to be talking about yep. absentee voting and voter disenfranchisement. And in, in fact, it, it would be considered kind of like conspiratorial at that time to be talking about these items and then to be saying that voters are going to be disenfranchised with absentee voting. And, and fraud is you are taking a, a ballot, you are changing its value, and then you are submitting it. And you are the person who is doing this is not the original person who casted the ballot, right? So if I vote for Tommy Tenfingers uh, and then it gets intercepted and someone changes the vote to Sally Tentos, that God, is what district that is fraud. Like, what? This is weird. <laughs> <laughs> People that have 10 fingers or 10 toes, you know, I guess. Interesting. Uh, they just run for politics here. But disenfranchisement is I, I send in my vote. And it never gets counted. We always have to deal with the problem of fraud and we should always be aware of it. But why not just have a large portion of a voting voting block area that votes one way or the other fairly consistently every election? eh, We'll just have their votes not count. Easy. This county is very, you know, leans one way or the other consistently. Uh, We'll just lose 20 percent of the results. And and that 20 percent number is not unfounded. In uh, this year alone, we've had ballots, uh, groups in, on the East Coast, 25% of voters being disenfranchised during smaller elections. And that's in 2020. I mean, that's one in every four ballot not being counted, uh, which is crazy, right? In, Absolutely. In New Jersey. Crazy. So th- these aren't like unfounded statements. But again, like I said, if we were to talk about this in 2015, we would be considered conspiracy theorists. And I voted absentee before as well myself so it's not like i've never used it or i've always had this huge mistrust in it it's just now that we see when it's done on a larger scale we have more voters who are disenfranchised and depending on you know the political leadings that you might personally have you can just imagine what types of groups certain political parties would want to disenfranchise themselves so that they could have a better outcome for their electorate so it is definitely, it is something to be aware of now. Handmarked ballots in person is the gold standard type thing. Long story short, with everything to wrap up what I just said, voter voter fraud, you might hear that term, voter fraud with absentee voting or, or with mail-in voting and stuff like that. But when it comes to absentee voting, again, it's not fraud that we have to worry about so much, though that is something that we should be aware of and, and address if it is found. But it is the dealing with the actual problem, the the voter disenfranchisement, which is a larger problem than fraud. We've been seeing it. 100,000 votes in California not counted this year in a smaller election. There's been multiple places with 10 plus percent going up to 25 where just votes aren't counted. Think about that on a national level. If 10% of the votes for 
Trump wasn't counted in 2016, if if 10% of the vote wasn't counted for Hillary, if you think on it on a local level as well, how close are current local elections? They're usually within a single digit percentage points in, in a lot of places in, in battleground states, not for federal. I'm talking about like their personal senators. 3% is not an uncommon number to see. If you have 10% or more of voter disenfranchisement, like you can now you're fixing the election. And that's the technical term is election fixing. You're making an outcome happen that you want to happen. And there are groups outside of the, I mean, there might be groups inside the United States. I don't, I don't have proof for that. But there are groups outside the United States that pay big money to fix elections in Central America and in places like Africa and places in some areas of Europe. These places have been documented to have election fixing happening. One other, one other kind of like anecdotal thing. If you haven't sent any mail via USPS recently, I, I don't often. I had, to, I had to renew my registration for my car. And it took one month for that to even like make it to the DMV. It had to go a total of like three miles distance. It took one month. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and like I think I read online like you should expect to have it done within two weeks, like fully process them back within two weeks. So, so just anecdotally, I rarely am sending mail, but the one time that I have sent mail recently, it took a whole heck of a lot longer uh, for it to to round trip. Uh, we've kind of talked on the subject, but how should elections be conducted then? What, what are some of the, we talked about hand-marked ballots, but let's talk a little bit more about what that looks like. Because the next thing people are going to say is, oh, there's uh, paper ballots. There's a myriad of problems that can happen with them. And we'll, let's discuss that in this section. How should elections be conducted? Yeah. If we're jumping off from the point of hand-marked paper ballots being the gold standard, there are just a couple other things we need to tack on how an election is conducted to make it ideal. But we need to have a voter verified paper audit trail. And this is already captured in the handmarked paper ballot. We've already discussed it quite a bit. I won't belabor that point. In addition, for every election we run, we need to actually go back and verify the vote. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but after having a couple beers at a bar, when I'm tabbing out, I check my math twice. We don't do that with our elections. <laughs> um, we need to go back and actually verify that our first vote count is accurate. And there are a couple of ways of accomplishing that. You can go back and you can recount every ballot. And that's really um, takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. It's not, it doesn't really make sense. Uh, depending on the scale of your election. Fortunately, we have a lot of clever statisticians in this world who came up with something called risk-limiting audits. A risk-limiting audit, it, it's a way of counting a subset of the ballots and sampling the ballots in such a way that you can have confidence that the vote is within however many percentage points, however many bips of the results of the risk-limiting audit. So, and these numbers, I don't know if they're accurate, but say you have an election of a million votes. You might be able to conduct a risk-limiting audit 
by sampling, say, 10,000 votes. And then after doing that sampling, you could say, okay, we believe this person won within this much confidence, which is well within the threshold of calling the election. So, again, it is done for the second count before people think like, oh, we're going to do this for the first count. Like, no, you can count everyone the first time. But then you can use this to kind of verify to see like, okay, yeah, did, did things work out as we expected them to? Uh, it does that double check. On bar tabs, I, I don't check my math twice. Maybe I should start <laughs> doing that. But but having having additional controls in place, right, is always a benefit, especially when it comes to elections, especially in today's day and age where, unfortunately, the reality is that we have politics becoming so polarizing. So having trust in the system, having trust in the outcome is going to be extremely important, especially for like this year, more so than any other year, especially not to make it political, but it is a reality that having these type of these type of double checks will bring more trust into the system that has a lot of mistrust into it right now. Uh, I think I left out a critical point of risk limiting audits. So after conducting the audit, there's a large enough gap between who wins and loses that it is accurate. And if the race is too close to call for statistics to give insight into who won. At that point, you go back and count all the ballots. So it's kind of a first yep. pass. In addition, we should have same-day voter registration. The nice thing about same-day voter registration is it, it helps prevent voters from being disenfranchised if their voter registration is out of date or not accurate in any way. Yeah, that's I've seen I've seen some friends from back in Georgia where it's like they were registered to vote in 2018, they went to check on their voter registration and it turns out like oh, they had been purged from the polls uh in Atlanta and it was yeah, it might have been because they changed addresses or they like they didn't even really change an address, they just went to the DMV and got a new ID and so they like ended up having a different official address but at least to me, as somebody who's not particularly plugged into all the different reasons that this could happen, it seems like it's way too common that you end up getting your registration voided uh, in particular places for reasons that you don't even know, don't even know that it happened. So like, you need to be keeping track of like, am I registered? If you're planning on voting, which you absolutely should be doing, uh, you need to be checking and making sure that you have up-to-date registration because we don't have same day voter registration in most places as far as I'm as far as I'm aware. Yeah, no, it's it's not adopted here and there's a lot of people that don't want it. I I personally would be a huge fan of same day voter registration as long as we have like the similar uh requirements used to get like a real ID yeah, act, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And and we have and prove who you are and you can and well, prove you, can who you are here done. Yeah, yep. Proof of address, proof of residency for a certain amount of months, multiple proofs of IDs, and that is a you know birth certificate, social security number, passport, you know all these documents that you have to bring now to to get a driver's license in states that have adopted the Real ID Act. Use that same method; it's good enough to get an ID. It works. <laughs> or if you already have a Real ID, that we say like, okay, cool, this is effectively like this is getting closer to a passport in terms of like national identification. If you have that, that should be good enough too. 
that I would say still bring like st- I would still say have two forms of ID mm-hmm. right required. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, a real ID and a passport, yep. right, yep. or or something like that. Just because that that nerfs all the naysayers that are just like this is going to because one of the biggest things with same day voter registration is that it's going to cause more cases of fraud. And it's just like we have ways to get around this to to make it work. Providing that multiple ID check really nerfs a lot of those naysayers that are really against this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it could be done. The thing that it will require is it's going to require more administration and overhead. And some people, they're going to make the argument of, well, elections can't even run correctly as they are. Now we're going to add a more complex a more complex piece. And it's just like, yes, as long as we don't try to like force this during an election year and we actually take our time to do this 2024, hey, that's four years from now. Maybe we should look into implementing systems that can be repeatable and try them uh, before we actually implement them. This is not something that is impossible, even though, yeah, we get it. It's, it's, it's a lot of moving parts, but these are things that could be done within a few years' time if people actually wanted to make this happen. Now, a lot of people don't want it to happen. Yeah, we, when you say people, I don't want to bring politics into it too much, but it really comes down to political will, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, everything. Right. And I mean, even election security, I, I told you guys this story um, dealing with election security in this year, me talking to senators about it. And uh, and this was in a small, intimate setting. This wasn't I wasn't testifying to Congress, though. If Congress wants me to testify about election security, uh, I will totally do it with Logan. And Chris. Uh, um, yeah. And uh, th- this was a, a smaller setting talking on a more personal level with a senator and i brought up early in 2020 uh, around february i believe the point of election security where i was being asked hey what is the cybersecurity community worried about from these senators and i said election security and and one senator in particular i brought it up to her and and her response was just like oh yeah that's that's a state issue and she was correct on that uh, statement. And then I brought up, well, isn't DHS being involved? Because people understand that the states can take care of it all by themselves. So DHS kind of got involved, implying some federal like, you know, onus onto the solving this problem. And the response I got was mind blowing and really eye opening. She responded by saying, yeah, no one really wants to get into that right now. And I was just like, <laughs> if not now, then what? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I was thinking in my head, I was screaming internally, right? I was just like, no one wants to get involved with this right now. Like, you know, when we have an election that is going to be very polarizing, no one really wants to get involved with that. Mm, maybe maybe we should look at this a little bit more. But nope, nope. The answer was just like, yeah, yeah. You know, we, we appreciate understanding the concerns of the security community uh, in your particular state. We just don't care about that right now because that just doesn't fit with what we want to push forward. And I was just like, what the hell? Wow. Like, <laughs> and I, I, I didn't respond with anything because I realized there's nothing I could say to change the opinion of the person at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's probably nothing I could say to change that opinion of that person right now. But I bet you, I, 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 I bet you a hundred percent that 
she, uh, if she gets reelected, she will bring up election security if things don't go the way that she wants them to go. Yep. I I bet you that would I mean, be unsurprising. <laughs> I, yeah, it, it is. It, it is frustrating, right? And something I get really jacked up about when we start talking about this type of stuff. Uh, it's just the reality that a lot of people don't care. Why? Because they they got elected. Uh, why yeah. do they care? Yeah. Right. It worked. The system has worked for them. Why do we need to fix it for others? Yeah. And and it, like if you dig too much into that system, it might be that the uh, the problems in that system actually aided to their election or uh, aided oh, to their yeah. to their ability to be where they are. So like, who really wants to question the mechanisms that put you in power? Yeah, that's right. Legitimizes their win. Yeah. Oh man. So, yeah. So in terms of in terms of like tampering, hacking, and meddling, I mean, we we talked about how like fraud is actually not all that common, but disenfranchisement is super common, and they effectively end up in the same. They accomplish the same means, right? Disenfranchisement is the uh, plausible deniability version of fraud, right? Where it's like, well, fraud, you can really point like I know that this is yeah. disenfranchisement. Yeah. Is like, what do you mean? I just I I accidentally burned all those records. I don't know what you're talking about. So what other ways, uh, like, like what are the easiest ways that elections are like tampered with or hacked or meddled in? Uh, right now, disinformation campaigns. Yeah. 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 This subject in itself is extremely polarizing. 20, 2016, if you think Russia didn't run some type of disinformation or, or some type of term would be PSYOP campaign, you're foolish. No matter your political leaning. You have to understand the reality of this. Now, the reason for it, it wasn't necessarily to force one person to get elected over the other. Because when we talk about Russia, right, what do we usually talk about? We talk about Trump winning against Clinton. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. What we don't talk about really is Bernie Sanders also had Russia influence on his campaign. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are many pro Bernie Sanders stuff. So was it Russia wanted Trump in or Russia just didn't want Hillary in? But Going to the main point, and this is this is points that are established and you know used in, in these reports that have came out since this uh, since the 2016 election. The main point of the Russian campaign was not to get one person elected or or another. The main point was to cause mistrust in the system, and for for what they've done that campaign. Been the a campaign wasn't success. well, yep. yeah, hugely successful. It wasn't. It wasn't well managed, right? That's the thing. It wasn't a, like a well executed campaign. It wasn't super well thought out. We we saw some of the work. <laughs> we, we've seen all the work pretty much, and and we can see that it was kind of amateur hour, uh, and and how it was ran. I think us three could come up with a better disinformation campaign than what was done in 2016, <laughs> but. Well, it turns out that when you have American social media companies to help them out, <laughs> that it can be wildly oh, successful. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I was about to say, I don't think we could be as successful, though. But it, it is not because of our, our lack of ability to manage it correctly. It's because it worked so well yeah. for during that year. And it continues to work, right? Yeah. It was the, the main intent. Uh, and this is again the opinion of many in the intelligence world, and, and, and these are these. This opinion has been published on official like documents dealing with this investigation. The main intent was to cause distrust, so distrust uh, into the American political system, and it definitely has done that. Yep. More 
more than their wireless dreams, right? I I don't even think they thought it was going to be as successful as it was. I mean, they they spent less than it costs to buy a typical house in California on the campaign and look at how great it's done in its return of investment. It's just nuts. So uh, we dove right into the disinformation discussion there. (laughs) I I, I just want to say uh, for key takeaways, don't believe everything you read online. Don't get your news from Facebook, please. Please. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Facebook, Twitter, you know, what, whatever, Parler, whatever your, your social media app of choice is, Reddit. Yeah. Don't get it yeah. from there. Right. And, and, and more importantly than ever, look at, at groups that vote or, or that, that disagree politically when it comes to media companies. See what both sides are saying. And sometimes you'll mm-hmm. get the truth in between. Yep. Uh, yeah. With that, do do yourself a favor and uh, <laughs> I, I watched it a few days ago. Watch the documentary "Social Dilemma," uh, and it'll give you some pretty good insight into the sort of walled garden that is your information feed if you're getting it from social media. Uh, it's meant specifically to just make you think that everybody thinks like you, when in reality, humans are super diverse. Everybody has their own opinions. Everybody has their own belief mechanisms. Like. It's called out in in the movie uh, where you like you cannot come to understand how somebody else could possibly have the beliefs that they do because you have all the information you have. Clearly, they did as well. And so you just think that they're idiots. You, you write them off. That does feel pretty prescient for the sort of world that we're living in today. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the easiest way. So, so we talked about disinformation campaigns. Let's let's talk about another way that can be used to really fix elections and, and probably the easiest way to hack an election to use that phrase is going to be uh, hacking voter registration databases for disenfranchisement right yeah, yeah. Um, and, and we have we have some lurkings of proof that this this could be happening so it, it is we have malware being found on voter registration databases we have uh, unaccounted for voter registration databases being publicly accessible to the internet, right? What? Wow. Wow, Drew, that's crazy. Uh, yeah. If, Why don't you tell us about that, Logan? <laughs> yeah, so very concrete example. Prior to the 2016 election, I stumbled across a server that was managed by the Center for Election Systems at Kennesaw State University in Georgia. And it had all sorts of sensitive election day data on it. And part of that was a voter registration database. But it, it actually gets worse than that because it wasn't just a copy of a voter registration database. From a Freedom of Information Act request that was submitted to KSU, we discovered that the copy of the voter registration database, which I had access to, was actually the copy that was used to provision the uh, poll books for the largest counties in Georgia, like Fulton, DeKalb, Cobb. And that server was also vulnerable in such a way that an attacker could have compromised it and modified that database. Yeah. I, I, I want to tell my my part because we've referenced before in this in this podcast 
how all three of us have been interviewed by the FBI before. And this is my story about how <laughs> I was interviewed by the FBI because <laughs> I'm, I'm working with Logan on a separate project. And we, we find some new stuff with this uh, with this vulnerability research that we're doing. And it's like, oh, man, this is almost as crazy as that stuff that I found back in November. It's like, oh, what'd you find back in November? And he tells me this story about how it's like, oh, I ended up finding like like publicly accessible database records uh, for all, all registered voters for the state of Georgia. They had gone to clean it up. They had not sufficiently cleaned it up. And I was able to say, wait, it's still here. Uh, I was like, okay, well, clearly this didn't get fixed the right way previously. I escalated through a contact that I had at Kennesaw State University. Um, And uh, I remember remember making the decision to call this guy and be like, oh, man, this is kind of a big deal. I want it to be taken care of. I feel weird about... This is like one of those things that I don't even want to touch. But I'm like, I feel ethically obligated to do so. So I raised to him and was like, yeah, that's going to be weird. And within 48 hours, it was in the biggest newspaper in Atlanta. And within two weeks, I had FBI agents in my living room asking me about how I had come to find the data. Uh, so yeah, it was... Uh, yeah, it, like, like and, and just to put this in perspective, if you had the URL for where this data was sitting, you could email it to somebody. And if they if they opened that email and clicked on that link, it would download the database to their to their computer. It was that open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it was really bad. Worse. It was one of the worst case scenarios. And, and the crazy thing is, it's probably not the only example of that. We're just. I haven't gone around trying to look for election registration databases personally. Um, it, it makes your life sure easier. Nation states have. <laughs> yeah, makes yeah, exactly. Yeah, makes your life more interesting for sure. Um if if I was trying to fix an election in the US, that's how I would do it. I would hack those. Yeah. Yeah, because again, it's going after it's going after disenfranchisement. You can't point at a ballot that was cast that was then modified, but you you could just be like, oh, these guys weren't able to weren't able to cast their votes. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 it is much easier to go that route than to, let's say, hack a voting machine. Hacking voting machines individually could be, uh, is easy, sure, but it is a much more difficult method in in terms of being able to change a mass outcome in a election than the hacker, the vo- uh, hacking of the voter registration database in itself. So we're not discrediting that hacking voting machines could happen. Uh, and to be used to to change elections, we're just saying there are better tools out there right now for this process. Yeah, yeah. So we've talked a lot about many different things in this particular uh, episode, and there are many things that we just couldn't get to. But your three main takeaways that you should take from this episode is this: make sure your voter registration is up to date. Go vote in person forever. And then educate others. Share this episode with others. Learn more. Research more. Don't just take our word for it. Look into this yourself. For the upcoming election, there is only so much we can do as individuals to improve our election security posture. We must vote. We can also educate our peers on how to make voting as easy as possible and how to navigate information online. Ultimately, our individual ability to vote, volunteer, and educate others is what we need to dramatically improve our election security posture. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Security Explained. If you enjoyed listening, we'd love to hear from you. We're always looking for new topics that our audience finds interesting, and you might be able to pick our next show. Feel free to reach out via social media or radar podcast on your listening platform to let us know how we're doing. You can find us on the web at securityexplained.fm or on Twitter at SecExplained. Thanks again, and until next time, stay safe.